0: So we're gonna be in 2 Samuel chapter 13 tonight. We've last week we took a um just kind of a pause to look at an overview of it all. And um and so tonight we're gonna um we're gonna go we're gonna dig down deep. Um Blake, if you could mute everybody's microphone. I'm still hearing somebody's microphone. Um I'll unmute mine when you do. There it is. Okay, good. Um, all right, so we're going to go through um, now chapters 13 to, through 20. Tonight is just going to be thir- chapter 13. And we're dealing with uh, some really, a really difficult subject, to be honest with you. There's, there's a lot of times where, just for lack of a better way of expressing it, the Bible gets a little bit uh, R-rated. And tonight is, is one of those events, a, a really tragic event, and um, and so we're going to talk in a little bit of detail about it. Um, so uh, I, I promise to keep it as as PG-13 as I possibly can. But um, it lends itself to a little bit more explicit story. And that, and that's it's some something hard to do. But just to remind you of sort of the overview of what's happening in this this whole section of Scripture, chapters 13 to 20 of Second Samuel, mm-hmm. um, you remember that following right after the fall of, uh, and, and then repentance of David after he had had his affair with Bathsheba and committed adultery with Bathsheba and and got her pregnant and then murdered her husband. Um, David then follows up by finishing the Ammonites. And, but, but at the same time, even after he's done that, um, the prophecy of Nathan, who has told David that the sword is not going to depart from your house. We already see beginning to work and really coming to fruition in chapters 13 to 20. We're going to see, uh, I mean, David's family just being torn apart top to bottom. And, um, and, and just systematically, one by one, uh, uh, very awful, awful things happening to his family um, that none of us would ever wish on our worst enemy. And it's, it's as a result of, of David's sins. And what we're going to see is that David's sins are, are repeated by his sons. They're exaggerated by his sons. They take them a little bit further than even David did. We're going to see even tonight, some strong parallels between, um, some other parts of the, the, the book of first Samuel and the sins of, of Absalom and Amnon and um, and how all of this plays out. It's sort of a repeat of the past as it were. And so we see these, these sins of David coming to roost uh, in David's family in a, in a very tragic, tragic way. Uh, But it's as a result of his sin and and Nathan's prophecy is, is coming to fulfillment that the sword won't depart from David's house. Now, overall, this story of, of, Storyline of chapters thirteen to twenty is uh, is a lot like the story of Bathsheba, where there's a sexual sin. It's followed by a murder, and then afterwards, someone comes to David telling him a parable that that sort of tricks him into passing judgment on himself. And so you see this sort of pattern of sin uh, coming coming back. Uh, to himself. And when I, when I say the word story, I just want to make this clear. Uh, cause some people don't probably don't understand that when I say that, when I say the word story, I don't mean fake. I don't mean it's a fairy tale. I just mean that it's a, a narrative. It's a, it's got, it has real historical characters in it. And, and the author is making a point. So this story that's being developed is sort of a repeated story. You see these sins coming back, uh, on David in a, in a typical pattern. Um, then uh, the third thing we talked about last week was that we're also seeing not only just patterns in the things that, uh, patterns of David's sin that happened with his sons, but then some of the sins of David and what the events that happen after that echo a lot of what has happened in Genesis, which makes perfect sense with what we've, uh, we've, seen already in just biblical theology that God has his hand in history is sovereign over history and is, is teaching humanity through history. And so David has established the kingdom of God, much like Adam and yet just like Adam who reached out and took of the forbidden fruit. So David also took of a forbidden fruit in another man's wife and he, was, he is going to be subsequently driven from the city of Jerusalem, that kind of prototype of a garden city he's going to be driven from. Then his, brother, the, his, his son's uh, brother is going to murder brother. And then ultimately the house of Jacob, Israel, is going to be divided, um, not only in David's own time, but then also subsequent to his time, the house of Israel is going to be divided. Um, we also will see where just like Jacob or Israel uh, an, anoints Judah, his fourth son, to be king, uh, Solomon, the fourth son of, of uh, at least by the account in Chronicles, the fourth son of Bathsheba is, is also anointed king. And, and so there's a, there's a lot of strong parallels that seem to be being built uh, from David's story, not only in this in the life of his own sons but then also in um echoing back to the genesis story where the kingdom of god has has fallen yet again at the hands of of humans and kind of serving as a testimony that the king that we need is uh yes needs to be a human king but also needs to be a divine king and so we we take that and we move a little bit forward now where we're digging in deep to chapter 13 itself and specifically the sin of Amnon and what sorts of things are being communicated there. So we have this uh, narrative that takes place in chapter 13, verses 1 to 14. That's in your verse packet. And and we see that Amnon uh, is going to fall in love, or he says he's fallen in love, with his half-sister Tamar. And then he acts on the advice of his cousin Jonadab, where he is advised to, well, what you should do really is you should pretend to be ill since you're in love with her and you should ask your dad, David, when he comes to see you, for him to let Tamar, your sister, come and feed you. And so he cooks up, they cook up this idea together where Amnon is going to be able to, um, I guess the the right way of, of saying it would be, petition his his half-sister Tamar to sleep with him and um and the way he's going to do this is basically get David to command her to come into the room he's going to pretend to be sick he's going to say you know what really helped me out is if my sister came to to my half-sister came to see me and she took care of me and so uh David obliges his sick son, uh, sick in more ways than one, um, to come and, and, and take care of her of her half-brother. And so she does. He, he gets his way. We're going to read that and, uh, in 2 Samuel 13, 1-14. to So read there with me. It should be in your verse packet there. Um, now, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. That's scary in and of itself. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab. He's actually a cousin. The son of Shimea. David's brother, and Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, "O son of the king, why are you so haggard "'morning after morning? "'Will you not tell me?' "'Amnon said to him, "'I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. "'Jonadab said to him, "'Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. "'And when your father comes to see you, "'say to him, "'Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat "'and prepare the food in my sight.' that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying, lying down. Uh, And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber of Amnon, her brother, but when she brought them near, to, uh, near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, who, uh, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel, now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you, but he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Uh, certainly a tragic story and, and, and really awful in detail. And we're going to read the rest of it here in just a second. But uh, what what's even worse about the story, so Amnon you know, obviously has cooked up this really awful, terrible plan at the advice of his cousin, Jonadab. And if you look, I've included this, uh, another page at the very end of your packet, um, which is kind of an appendix at the end that that lays out the sort of really weird family tree uh, that you can see there. David in the middle and his wives are sort of spread out across. There's some kids attributed to David. We don't know what wife they were belonged to but um, the rest of them are kind of laid out there. So you can see Amnon uh, and Tamar and then Absalom. Amnon is the son of David and Ahinoam and Tamar and Absalom are the son of De- the son and daughter of David and Makkah. And so uh, that makes Amnon the half brother of Tamar. If I have my uh, crooked family tree uh, correct, but, but essentially um, Amnon has not only cooked up this, this um, really awful, twisted plot, but, and at the behest of his wise and so-called crafty uh, cousin Jonadab, but then he does something even more heinous afterwards. Not only does he force himself upon her and rape uh, his half-sister, Tamar, but then he's actually going to take her and send her out and, re- and, and make her a rejected member of the Hebrew society by not then taking her as his wife. And you see where she actually petitions him as she realizes what he's about to do or what he's committed to doing. She says, look, you should petition your dad, David, the king. Surely he will not withhold me from you from taking me as your wife now. Let me just say, as if anybody has this question or preempt this question, that is a terrible and horrible thing, even back then in Jewish society. It is outlawed completely, as we will see in just a moment. And as we will read in just a moment, it's completely outlawed. And um, in fact, it's evident within the story that the Jews saw it As a terrible thing because she tells him, look, you're going to make me a rejected person in society. You're going to you're going to do something that's debased and foolish and you're going to make yourself a rejected fool in society. So there's already inside the text more than enough warrant to, to say they knew this was bad he knew this was bad the society around them knew this is bad and would condemn it now why then does she ask does she tell him look david would give me as as a wife to you uh, incest is uh, is also outlawed it's not not good and and that was also a rejected thing in society but but i think what she's trying to get at is better than rape and rejection is taking me as a a wife. Granted, you'll be rejected. I'll be scorned in society, but at least I won't be impoverished and left alone, I think is the the kind of logic there, Um, that it's a lesser of evils is kind of what she's appealing to in a a sense, Um, though no one in society would say incest is a good thing. And, um, and she's certainly not trying to elevate incest as something that would be desirable, but she's simply saying, I think David would, uh, would comply with his sons. There's also a lot of evidence to suggest that this is later in David's reign. This is toward the end of his, his tenure. And the, like we said, the the chronology of the story is going to jump back and forth a little bit. And this probably is more toward the end or getting closer toward the end, probably the last 10 years or so of his reign. So somewhere in the nine seventies. And, um, and so, uh, he, he, he's probably seen as a little bit weaker than he used to be. Um, and we're going to see a little bit of that in just a minute, as we get to the end of tonight, that he definitely is not the David of old. And, um, and so she probably knows this and says, well, he'd probably give you whatever, whatever you want anyway. And so, um, so she, said she makes this uh, petition for him, but he, doesn't have, he won't have any of it. He, being stronger than she, forces himself upon her and rapes her. And then we see he does an even more despised and, and terrible thing uh, in 13, 15 to 22. So look, look at that with me there in your verse packet. Then Amnon hated her. With, a, with very great hatred so that, that, that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves and thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe, which she wore, uh, that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon, your brother been with you? Now hold your peace. My sister he is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Um, so this episode is obviously the first bit of evidence that we see of the sword never departing from David's house, that fulfillment of Nathan's prophecy um, that was made back in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12, verse 10. Um, so as I said, Amnon is David's eldest son. He's the oldest son of, of David. Um, this is also probably why why Tamar appeals to him to go to David, is because being the eldest son, the assumption is that he's going to take the throne. Now, we've already been told that it's going to be Solomon that takes the throne. But being the oldest, it would be natural for most of the people that maybe didn't know that about Solomon, um, that they would assume that, uh, that Amnon was going to take the throne. And so um, he would naturally, as the heir apparent, probably get whatever he wanted uh, from David. And so um, now we have to say right off the bat, that, uh, that there's, you know, Absalom obviously loves his sister and he comes to his sister and he consoles her and he tells her, you know, look, don't be despondent about this. Don't worry about this. And it's also obvious that uh, she lives with Absalom A- Absalom thereafter. The scripture is going to tell us that she lives in his house and, and doesn't depart from him. But why is Absalom so consoling to her? Well, he, You know, he says to her there at the end, don't take this to heart, Uh, hold your peace. There's some people that think that hold your peace, don't take this to heart is his way of saying that we're not gonna make a big stink about this. We're not gonna take this to court and we're not gonna, you know, because we won't win and we won't, uh, if we petition David, he won't do anything about it and that kind of thing. I don't know if that's so much it as it is. Uh, What we'll see here in a minute, Absalom is also a pretty wise and crafty, dude and one thing that we're going to see with Absalom he holds his peace for several years and doesn't say a thing and so it seems that just as Jonadab is pretty crafty Absalom is also really crafty and he might just be saying no worries it's not a big deal we'll take care of this so that no one knows what he's about to do or what he's cooking up what's what's kind of in the plans, either one might be the case who knows but um, nevertheless Absalom comes along beside her and consoles her now we have to do we have to say um, that rape like I said is is shameful, but th- this was also not just rape this was also incestuous rape and was explicitly forbidden in com- in covenant law. Um, It says in Leviticus 18.9, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. 18.11, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife, uh, your father's wife's daughter, brought up in your father's family since she is your sister, uh, 2017, if a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother and sees her nakedness and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace and they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of the people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness and he shall bear his iniquity. Uh, Deuteronomy twenty seven twenty two. cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother and the people shall say, amen. Um, so one thing that is, is, uh, absolutely, um, apparent here is that not only was it against covenant law, but it's punishable by death. Um, that, that person deserves to die, not just for rape. They deserve to die for rape, but incestuous rape on top of that. And what does David do? He does nothing. This is an evidence uh, of, I think even Blake mentioned this last week, but this is uh, evidence of David's, perhaps his growing weakness, where he is either inept or incapable, uh, or perhaps he just doesn't want to put his son to death. And any way you slice it, David is culpable in this. And uh, Tamar calls this, godlessness and argued that if Amnon uh, did this, he would be like the rest of the godless in Israel, the ones that um, transgress the, the, the law of God. But then as you look back over her story um, it seems evident that the author of, of second Samuel is trying to get us to see this narrative through the lens of Tamar to help us understand how terrible this actually is. I mean, you calculate all the things that she went through. Tamar is trapped by him, like lured in and, and, and ensnared. She's ignored in her plea to him. It literally says he ignored her. He didn't listen to her. She's raped. She's then despised. He then hates her um, on on top of having disgraced her, hates her, despises her. He then banishes her and subsequently ruins her. Um, and she's gonna live basically in her brother's household for the rest of her life. Um, you know, never um uh, never being married or, or or and being a sort of a disgraced person in society. Um uh, for the rest of, of the time. And so we get this picture from Tamar's perspective. It, it's some, it's sometimes quite rare in the biblical account that we see things from the perspective of the ones that have been disenfranchised. Um, you know, the for instance, I, I, my mind goes back to uh, the book of judges, the very end of the book of judges where the tribe of Benjamin, you know, um, basically takes this concubine and, and, um, and, and, rapes her and uh she dies after that and and the the her master or whatever is is really upset about it and you don't see things from her perspective like if the the story isn't written from her perspective this is one of those kind of a rare story where you actually get quite a bit of dialogue from tamar herself where she's and and the the author of the Narrative is, is telling you how tragic this really is. And so often a lot of these stories in the Bible that have these kind of, well, more or less salacious details will, um, you know, they, they, uh, they present the story and we kind of uh, look on in sort of an intriguing sort of way. But the, the author is really trying to shake you of that and help you to see things from her perspective, being trapped, ignored, raped, despised, banished, and ruined, and how absolutely horrific this sin actually is. And we, we should see it that way. But there's also some really other very interesting things that the author brings to light in this story. There's some interesting people that he um, helps you to see. And there's there's really not a man in this story that doesn't have a significant character flaw, uh, a significant uh, and abhorrent um, behavior. And pretty much all of the male characters are deficient in some way. And the author is portraying these, these four major characters this way. We wanna talk about three of them initially. So the first one is Amnon, who obviously is exercising um, passion without any love he says at the very beginning he tells his cousin i'm in love i'm in love i'm in love he's not he's in lust as we as we commonly put it today but he he thinks of what he has as love for his sister but it turns out that it's actually hatred and what what's i think a, a, a very pertinent point that needs to be made here is that lust and hatred are actually bedfellows with one another. And you you see this in Amnon's behavior. He is lusting after his sister, and what is his thought in how he exercises that lust, but to force himself upon his sister? And what happens after that, but his actual feelings for her come to the surface in that he really does despise her and hate her he sees her as as nothing more than just you know um you know not to put it too crassly but a piece of meat and something to be objectified and and it it does serve that that lays that foundation of a point that that lust after someone uh is, is hatred of them because you end up pursuing them in all kinds of ungodly ways. And whether it's through even just mental exercises or, uh, trying to, you know, gain some sort of advantage in some way as he does, uh, with her and forcing himself upon her. So Amnon is presented as this person who, who has this, um, foolish passion but has absolutely no love, no actual love behind it. If he loved his sister, he would actually care for her um, in a biblical and godly way. And he he did not do that in any way. But then there's Jonadab, who kind of, if you're not paying attention to to the narrative, Jonadab can sort of escape your notice. He appears here early in the passage, where he advises his cousin to do a really awful thing to his other cousin. Um, But then later on in the story, he's going to come back and you're going to see this supposed wisdom that he has. He's presented in the story as, as wise. Um, The word that's translated in the ESV is crafty. Um, The word is, is probably wise, better, better, thought of as wise but it's not the kind of wisdom like you might think about it as as wisdom it's more um, it's more like a um, depth of insight he has insight perceptiveness to situations he understands people's character decisions that they would make concocts plans and can devise strategies really well Uh, Maybe the right way of thinking about it would be he's wise like a general in an army would be wise, like a good general would be wise. Perhaps he has no scruples, which obviously he doesn't, but but he certainly can devise a, a, a strategy and perhaps even an effective strategy, even if it is without scruples. And that's exactly his character flaw, isn't it? That's what we see come to the surface is that he has wisdom, but he lacks principle. There is no governing uh, moral or governing ethic to ground that wisdom, to make it actually fruitful and productive for the kingdom of God. Um, There is a a quote that I thought I have to include this. It's priceless from John Calvin in commenting on this exact um, passage and, and John Adab specifically. He says, therefore, When we see that the spirit of God, I think he means by that the wisdom of God here, uh, stated here as a reproach that Jonadab was a prudent man and that he so forgot himself as to be a pimp for his male cousin, disgrace his female cousin, and be disloyal to his uncle, the king. It all warns us to pray that if God has given us some prudence, he would also add integrity and sincerity so that we may keep ourselves from craftiness. So that, that's, that's Jonadab in a nutshell. Wisdom without principle is craftiness. And I think there's a great way to think about the character of Jonadab here. Is, uh, and, and, and really he serves as a warning to everyone that we can pray for wisdom all we want, and we should pray for wisdom. We should also pray that the Lord keeps us uh, in His love, that He keeps us in integrity, that He keeps us in sincerity. Because uh, wisdom without integrity is is craftiness. Um. But then the third male figure here that uh, shares some of the blame is no doubt David. Um. So David. We see this bit of anger. He's mad about it as he hears um, about the whole, the whole thing that's, that's taken place. And, and yet, uh, he doesn't do anything about it. He, um, he, uh, he, he basically uh, absolutely does nothing. He has anger, and yet he has no justice. He has every right to exercise the death penalty on Amnon. Uh, execute him on the spot for what he's done and he doesn't do it so this is really interesting i think because what have we said about david he's the tip of the spear of the kingdom of god and yet he doesn't execute justice tell me what is the kingdom of god without justice well, it's nothing. And here is David, the spearhead of the kingdom of God, and expresses this anger of, over Amnon and the sin that he's committed. But he does nothing about it. And so he places fatherly love higher than the will and justice of the Lord. So he certainly mimics Yahweh's uh, or he, 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 he has in the past mimicked Yahweh's kingship. But now he is not mimicking Yahweh's kingship or he would be a stronghold for the oppressed and bring the way of the wicked to ruin. Right? Don't the Psalms bear this out? Aren't we seeing that right now in the Psalms that that in the kingdom of God, this is what the person that belongs to the kingdom of God can and should expect of the kingdom of God over the course of years. As the kingdom of God evolves, God will execute justice um, over the long haul. And we should expect that. We know that to be true of God. We know that he judges uh, the wicked. He judges wickedness and, and, we should expect that. Well, well. here's David, the spearhead of the kingdom of God, not executing justice, not bringing the wicked to ruin. We have to see through the lens of Scripture that the kingdom of David now has become nothing virtually. It, it, it is no longer a, a, a bastion of the kingdom of God at all. Uh, David is, is fr- a fraud sitting on the throne. He won't put to death his own son for what he's done. And is it because he thinks that maybe this might be the heir apparent? Does he know that about Solomon yet? We Who knows, but uh, who knows what his thinking is there, but it, it's obviously not biblical. Now that's three of the males. The, the fourth is gonna be uh, Absalom, but I wanna tease out Absalom just a little bit. Um. So Absalom concocts this plan where he arranges for Amnon. He, first, he lets things grow cold. All right. So he he kind of just lets things relax, let everybody kind of forget about what's happened. And uh, But Absalom hasn't forgotten. And he arranges for Amnon to join him and the rest of his brothers at a sheep shearing party, which, of course, we all have, you know. Um, But a sheep shearing party, uh, who knows what that, what all is entailed in a sheep shearing party, but we take it that basically sheep shearing is probably not, a um, uh, not something that everybody just easily has access to a set of clippers. Um, but that sheep shearing people were probably relatively rare, I assume. And that when you have a, a, person who's able to shear sheep at your disposal that you bring everybody, you know, together and they all, um, bring their hundreds and hundreds of sheep. And for many days, there's just uh, the sheep are, are, sheared. And what's produced is obviously wool and all kinds of, of great things that are, that are helpful for society and all of those kinds of things. And so Absalom has access to a sheep shearer, I suppose. And he creates this sheep shearing party and he's going to invite all of his brothers uh, to it. So we see that in, in 2 2nd Samuel 13:23 to 33. He says it says this, after two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Baal-hatsor, and which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, "Behold your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant." The, but the king said to Absalom, no, my son, let us not all go, let, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not, he, he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, oh, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said, why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on their way, News came to David, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, said, Let not the Lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has uh, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead. For Amnon alone is dead. So Absalom has concocted this this sort of sheep shearing party, and but. You notice that Absalom is really shrewd about this whole thing. Absalom has the idea that he needs to invite David along with him. Why? So that he can and he and he also invites all the brothers too. Because I, you get the kind of feeling that David's ears are perked up a little bit when Absalom asks for Amnon to come. Um, and certainly, if Absalom asks for Amnon alone. David's suspicions might, autumn, might really be raised. Um, and it seems like David has suspicions already there. But Absalom is, is crafty about it. And he doesn't ask for Amnon outright. He first asks for David, why don't you come too? And David says, no, no, no. And he says, well, okay, well, if you're not going to come, then let me, let me at least take all my brothers and we'll have a big party of it all make a big f- festival of it all and so david's suspicions are sort of alle- uh, alleviated by by absalom's cunning and his sort of craftiness in the situation and so he gets around that and he um he get, gets um gets uh, uh uh amnon um and gets david's permission to have amnon come with him now remember amnon is the is the firstborn son and perhaps at this point, according to the timeline, who knows, um, David's not entirely sure, maybe, whether or not Amnon's going to take the throne. And so, needless to say, the firstborn son, regardless, is an important son. And so, it, it would, you know, David's permission to, to go is, is, you know, a, a big deal. And so, David gives him permission to take him, and so they all go, and what is interesting about this event is that the last sheep-shearing festival that we saw in the two Samuels involved Nabal. You remember him? All the way back in 1 Samuel 25, Nabal was the husband of Abigail, I believe. Um, Nabal, uh, uh, who had this sheep-shearing festival, and David tried to get some... Provisions from him and Nabal turned him down. Remember what I said back then. You probably don't, and I don't blame you. Um, But Nabal's name means in Hebrew, literally foolish one. Uh, He was a fool and he was a Nabal and he died like a Nabal. And uh, because he turned David down. And you'll remember also that David, uh, when he, when he, um, came to get his, um, you know, to get his uh, 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 revenge, I guess you would say, on Nabal and to kill him. Abigail intercepted him, and she persuaded him not to go. You probably remember that too. Um, Nabal also got married with wine at his sheep-shearing festival, and the Lord killed Nabal. Amnon, it's interesting that this story very closely parallels Nabal's story uh, in, a, in a number of ways and with some notable exceptions, which I think are, are fascinating. First of all, when Amnon raped Tamar in that scene, she said to him that he is doing a disgraceful thing, literally a nebalah in Hebrew. You recognize that word, Nabal. He's doing a foolish thing. And then she actually tells him, you're going to become like one of the fools in Israel, one of the Nabals in Israel. She calls him a Nabal. And she tells him what he's doing is a Nabal. And he doesn't listen listen to her. And so he becomes a Nabal, right? Um, What's interesting here though is that, uh, and, and so what we see, the kind of moral of that part of the story is that Amnon lived like a nabal, and thus he died like a nabal. He lived like a fool, and he died like a fool. Um, now the the interesting thing here, and the ca- big character flaw that comes to the surface in Absalom, is that he has hatred without restraint, no restraint whatsoever. But what is? this is the notable exception in the story, which to me is the most fascinating part about it. This is the notable difference between the Amnon Absalom story and the David and Nabal story. Remember when David goes to attack Nabal, he's going he's to go down and he's going to kill Nabal. And Abigail intercepts him. And we see all the way back in... Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 32, that in the middle of that, of that interaction between David and Abigail, David stops and praises the Lord. And he says, because the Lord has sent you to me to restrain me. The Lord has sent you, Abigail, to me to intercept me and to keep me from doing this Nabal kind of thing, this foolish thing. But do you notice what happens in the Absalom story? There is no restraint. The Lord does not send anyone to restrain Absalom. In fact, as I said last week, and as we've seen, this is judgment on David's house. The Lord does not restrain The Lord has protected David, but David's chickens have come home to roost, so to speak. This is unrestrained judgment now. And we see that as the author brings out the parallels in the story between Amnon Absalom and David and Nabal. And I think that's a fascinating parallel. And it's just, to me, that is is really a... uh, Uh, just a a testimony to what the judgment of God actually feels like and actually looks like is it's not that people begin to be wicked when they weren't wicked before they've always been wicked it's the lack of restraint from the hand of God he simply just stops restraining and that's what he does with Absalom uh, or with, yeah, with Absalom. Um, so his huge character flood, the, Absalom, the fourth male in the, in the picture, he shows hatred without restraint. Um, and when the feast, it, it, you know, turns into this, this sort of slaughter of Amnon, um, Absalom and all the King's sons get to get up and leave and fake news comes to David and, uh, You know, it it says that all his sons are dead. And who is the one that spoils it? Jonadab is the one who has the insight, the depth of knowledge, the wisdom, the cunningness to go before David and present the quote unquote good news that it was only Amnon who is dead. Now, there's some interesting things, too, to think about. Um, Does Absalom think that David is complicit? in Tamar's rape and disgrace? Maybe. Consider what David has done. David was the one that sent Tamar to Amnon. Now, did he know Amnon was going to rape her? No, he didn't know that, obviously. But does Absalom think that maybe he is complicit in it? Does Absalom think that David is complicit in the rape and shame of Tamar because he didn't do anything to Amnon to begin with? Well, maybe. Uh, And he has good reason to probably think that there. But notice that David also has warrant to kill Absalom now for killing his brother. And yet he doesn't do that either. And so David is presenting himself really in weakness and not exercising the justice of God that he should be. Um, So we're going to see. Next week and following, the Absalom is going to flee uh, and be on the run for several years. And this is only the beginning of the story with David and Absalom. Um, I want to open it up for questions, uh, things that you might not be clear. Maybe I need to clarify. Surely there's something. (laughs) <laughs> shannon overwhelmed maybe yeah anything just, a, about, little. just, a, just little? a little uh i hope it's a good overwhelmed
1: oh yeah yeah okay, just something i'm gonna have to process
0: yeah yeah it's um but I, th- I think this you know the old testament is is fascinating when you read through it um You know the narrative. You it's uh, there's I can't remember who it is. I think it's Gregory of Nyssa uh, said that the the Bible is as it were a like a river in which the sheep can drink safely and the elephant can float at large. Um, and it's kind of a the picture you see that a lot in scripture where you can read it and. You know, you may not see the connection between, you know, Nabal and, and Amnon and all that and, and and that's perfectly fine and you can benefit greatly from it. And then but then you can dig even deeper and, and you can just keep going and see all these many different things that these that the author is doing here, helping you to see the absolute foolishness and, and plight of um, sinful humanity. So so I hope it's a good overwhelm. I, I don't wanna I'm not trying yeah. to Confuse you, but Mm
1: -mm.
0: a little bit of uh, soaking is good. Any other? Yeah, go
1: ahead. I'm just wondering, you you said earlier that when David, um, when Nabal refused and Abigail was sent and David said, he was thankful that the Lord had sent Abigail to restrain him. And, but then when we're looking at Absalom and you said that, No restraint was given, but yet it was against the law for Amnon to do what he did. And so why would the Lord send restraint? Because David should have exercised justice according to their law, and he didn't. Anyway.
0: Yeah, um, you know, I'm reminded of the, um, I believe it's a proverb um, that, you know the the there's the the waters of the heart of the king, but the the Lord controls the flow of the stream, the direction that it that it flows, turns it left and right. Um, David's obligation is to enforce the law of God, right? But the very fact that he doesn't, the, the, let me back up. The ability to do that is the empowerment of God. So um, his. It, uh yeah david's uh yeah david's ability to 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 enforce the law and to spearhead the kingdom of god is directly due to god's own provision in his heart and so we see that with with abigail as an, as an example and David sees this that abigail doesn't even come to David of her own you know volition if you will or or her own um her own uh, what what might be the word. Um, her, her own will, as it were, but it, but it's it's the Lord influencing her heart to stop David from doing this foolish thing, and so, so God is protecting David. And what I mean by the other is that that there's no one there to stand in Absalom's way and say, "No, you shouldn't do this," or back up, back the story up a little bit. No one's there to say, "David, you have to kill Amnon." Uh. The Lord's not there motivating the heart of of David to enforce the law of God. And in fact, that's when we see hellaciousness breaking loose is when the Lord removes that provision from the heart of man. And uh, as Paul puts it, gives him over to a depraved mind. And I think that's that's kind of what you're seeing. That's the difference there.
1: I thought it was interesting that Absalom, uh, whenever he's talking to his men to telling them that they're going to kill Amnon, that he
0: kind of misquotes the Lord. It sounds like that he's kind of, it sounded at least like he was hinting back towards the Lord's words to Joshua when he says, commanded be strong and courageous, do not be afraid. And yeah. just thinking about how we can, how we need to be careful with the word of God that we, uh, treat it with humility and don't flash it on. You know, flash it around as if it was out of context, onto things that God hasn't, um, God hasn't put that word towards. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, like like Satan on the on the temple with Jesus taking the words of Scripture and abusing it. Yeah, it's not a, not a, not just important that we read and memorize the Scripture, but we understand it in its context. And I'm intrigued by Absalom that he kind of becomes this, um, he's like the, the the contrast type. I don't know, the anti-type, I guess, where, you know, so he's father of peace by name. And then he's going to end up being cursed as one who's hung on a tree. And <laughs> there's all sorts of things going on with him um, that I think are really interesting as well. Yeah. Yeah, he's beautiful, but Christ has no beauty Right. Have. Yeah, yeah. It's certainly a, a deep, deep, deep story for sure. Yeah. Terry has a question on the text. <laughs> oh, what's the question? Oh, oh, there it is. Is Nathan still around during this time, or are there other prophets who should be aiding David? Um, I, I don't. I don't know. And uh, it's this is one of the hard things to know about the, especially. First and Second Samuel is, first Samuel is a little less so, but 2 Samuel in particular, we don't know at what point this occurs in David's reign. And we know so little about the prophets. Um, now I'm not talking about the writing prophets. I'm talking about, you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah and things like that. We know a little bit more about them. We know so little about the other prophets that were flowing around the kingdom at the time. And we know next to nothing about Nathan except a couple of times he appears in scripture, uh, in David's David's reign. So I, I'm, I'm not sure. And I, I I don't, uh, I know he, he appears in a little bit in, in the next few chapters, I believe, but I'm not sure in what in what relation that is. And I'm not sure how many other prophets are around at that time. Um, nor are we entirely sure what, uh, insight they had into all of this I mean at least it seems in in the rest of the writing prophets they are told very specific things and that's all they speak um so Nathan is told by God as an example to go to David and say this and he doesn't say anything other than that he says what what God told him to say and so you know, even if he's there and with other prophets, we're not sure how much insight they, they've been given. And given what we're seeing as David kind of David's kingdom and his family being handed over and being judged. I'm not sure that they would have anything to say anyway, because it would be a some form of restraint that I, that it seems like God is is more or less removing from them. So I hope that answers your question. It's not really much of an answer, but.
1: Pastor Michael?
0: Yes. Gladys. This is
1: Gladys Moffat. I'm not sure how to operate all this thing.
0: You're good. We but,
1: okay. In verse 5
0: of chapter 13.
1: Um, of chapter 13. Um John Adab at some point it says he's a very shrewd man. Yeah. And he's the one that cooks this uh, liaison up. And I am just wondering, and if you flip on over to verse 32,
0: yeah.
1: he um, says that uh, because by the intent of Absalom, this has been determined since the day that he violated his sister Tamar. Mm-hmm. So he's called a very shrewd person. Yeah. And he has answers to the whole story. Yeah. Is there any indication that he could have been behind this from the beginning? (laughs)
0: Um, Well, well, certainly, uh, if you remember, if you go all the way back to Genesis 3, um, the man and the woman fall in the garden because of a crafty individual that comes to them and uh, tempts them, right? Um, Jonadab's hands are bloody in all of this there is no question about that and uh it seems as though and and the, in fact the text will actually tell you that um that amnon has this lust for his sister but in verse 2 he can't do anything to her it, it seemed impossible to amnon to do anything to her Amnon can't figure it out and the the serpent as it were comes in now it's a different word that it's used but it's a very similar kind of connotation that uh he comes to him and helps him figure it out and now is he trying to wash his hands of it is you know another thing too is is he is he coming to david and going let me give you the real news you know, I'll, 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 you know, I'm on your side. Let me, let me help you understand what's really happening here. This is what happened and this is why Absalom did this. And it was only Absalom that did this and this is why he did it. He's been wanting to do this from a long, for a long time. And, and it seems very much like not only does he have that kind of insight, he's shrewd and he can see, he can make connections with all the pieces, but it seems like he's also trying to wiggle himself out of, out of, out of trouble as well. But there is no doubt in the text that his hands are bloody in all of this. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I would say, you know, even bloody like Satan's would be bloody in the garden. (laughs) Um, You know, so anyway. All right. Well, um, thanks for being here tonight. We're going to pray and then we're going to get out of here. Heavenly Father, we... um, We thank you for preserving this uh, story for us for these many years that we may uh, see it and learn, that we may uh, read of your judgment and understand what's going on in the hearts of the men that did these things so that we may look in a mirror and see in our own heart the many ways in which we are very like them in ways we don't even like to admit that we too have often unrestrained passions that we um, we too often um, think about vile things that we often unleash our anger and even as something as seemingly small as not bridling our tongue with other people speaking in love that we instead cut people or hurt them or harm them in various ways. We are much more like these men than we care to admit. And we thank you for the testimony of your word and the truth of it that we may not just see the mistakes that people have made in the past, but that we can also see that these things are timeless and true of our own selves. And we pray for restraint. We pray for wisdom ground in your word, grounded in your word that it would um, the wisdom that you give to us would be not only wisdom derived from your word, but applied to our heart and lived out in our lives. It wouldn't be unrestrained wisdom. We also pray um, for restraint for us to keep us from doing um, foolish things that we might not even think are foolish at the time, that you would providentially restrain us from doing that. We also have to recognize too At this very moment, we see unrestrained hatred and passions around us in society all over. And we cannot help but see your hand of judgment there too. And so, Father, we pray, even in the midst of all of this that's going on, we pray for restraint. We pray that you would restrain um, people that are bent on doing evil. And we pray that you would exalt the wisdom of your word through preachers in the pulpit, through members in the pew, that we would live our lives as Christians, a bold testimony of the gospel in front of the watching world that would make people long to see what we have and what we're so confident about. May it come about by us living your word out in wisdom. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. All right. See
1: you guys next week.